This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. By now, I think there's one thing we can say for absolute certainty about the Patrick Brown story that has pretty much dominated a lot of conversation and a lot of newscasts for the past few days. And that is this. Other than he and his two accusers, we are not really sure exactly what happened. Now, that may sound obvious, but at this point, that is a problem. That is a problem. Because when CTV News walked back a key bit of its reporting yesterday about the fact that the one of the accusers was not underage at the time that he apparently did whatever he did, the allegation about him, it then created doubt in other parts of the story, in other reporting, and led some people, you could read it today online, you can hear them talking about it, what else might be, might be, we don't know, but what else might not be accurate. This is the problem with inaccuracies in a story. And as a result, what had sounded like, especially when he resigned, what had sounded like a pretty clear case, suddenly not so much. Well, this also, in addition to stories that are questions about Patrick Brown himself, this has raised questions about journalism. How's it done? How do you come up with a story like this? How do you nail down a story like this? How do you make sure you've got this right? Well, I know someone who knows this stuff. I know a few people who know this stuff, but one in particular, his name is Steve Bust. He's an investigative reporter at The Spectator. He is a three-time National Newspaper Award winner, six other nominations, three-time Canadian Investigative Journalist of the Year, five-time Ontario Journalist of the Year. You may know him from his work. He did a thing called Code Red, which many people have followed. He did a recent, more recent series on concussions. He joins me now. Steve, how are you tonight? Excellent, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, no, I, I appreciate you doing this. Let's create a bit of a journalism scenario for you here. Uh, you get handed to you or told to you what you believe is a legitimate tip or at least a believable, plausible tip about an allegation that could topple or affect a really prominent person. What does Steve Bust do first with that? Well, so much of it depends on how the tip came to you. So, <clears throat> um, you know, there's uh, the first thing that you have to start thinking about is how do I protect myself, right? And, and so, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect yourself as a journalist? Because you always have to be, you know, when you do the type, some of the types of stories that I do, um, you, you sort of almost have to work backwards. You have to think with the mind of your lawyer, uh, the spectator's lawyer, and okay, so, you know, what am I going to get asked? How am I going to defend myself? If I end up uh, sitting on the witness stand, how am I going to, um, you know, defend the paper, defend my work, defend the story? And so, it, you know, a lot of times after having done this for a long time, you start working backwards. You start thinking, okay, what's the worst case scenario? You get sued. You got to sit on the stand. How do you defend yourself? And so, um, you know, in Canada we have, uh, as in other, you know, um, common law countries, we have protections uh, when you're you know al- alleged to have defamed somebody or slandered somebody and so the the uh, you know the defense is the first defense is always the best one it's the truth so if you can prove that what you've said is true that that's the ultimate and best test uh, we have something that's called uh, privilege so you can report on certain things with privilege knowing that you can't be sued for for example if somebody stands up in the house of parliament and says something, or if somebody says something in a, an open court session, uh, you have, you know, the ability to report that. Uh, you know, if somebody stands up in court and calls somebody a bald-faced liar or a fraud, 
you know, if that's in the course of uh, court action, you can report that. Even if it's not true, if it's, if it's there, you can true. do it. Yeah, so, so that's the sort of, uh, we, we have d- decided that there are certain places in this world where uh, you can report freely on what's said, things like city council meetings or courtrooms or parliament or the legislature, those types of places. Um, there's the defense of fair comment. That's generally more for columnists, to the ability to say, uh, you know, uh, Kent Austin was a fraud as a coach uh, of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Well, if you called a businessman a fraud in a news story, um, you probably wouldn't get away with that uh, unless it was true. And then the fourth defense, which is just relatively recent, uh, sorry if this is boring, but uh, the fourth defense that's just come out is is one that's been very helpful to people like me, and it's the uh, responsible journalism defense. So the idea is that if you take every step that you can reasonably take to authenticate the accuracy of a story, and it turns out that something that you reported may not have been accurate, but you did everything in good faith, uh, maybe the other side refused repeatedly to speak to you, um, you, you had good reasons to believe what you were reporting, then you can actually use that as a defense, um, which is very helpful, especially in whistleblower-type cases. So. The Patrick Brown situation, though, is, is sort of the, the perfect storm. Um, you know, the, those uh, dreams that people have before an exam where they, you know, they show up at the exam and they're only wearing their underwear. And, and <laughs> so, so for investigative journalists, that sort of fever dream is, is, you know, you get that call from the lawyer of the person you've just written about, or, or worse, uh, the call from your, your, your own company's lawyer. And you don't have any defense. So, uh, so the the gold standard would be, you know, in, if you get a tip, is okay. So, what documents do you have? Uh, what what do you have to actually on a piece of paper document what you're saying? Um, are these documents that are court documents? Are they uh, something that's reliable that you can authenticate? You know, is it a government document? Is it a um, information that's been released through a freedom of information request. Anything that makes it sort of quote-unquote official. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Steve Bust of the Hamilton Spectator, investigative reporter, multiple award winner, has won everything for his work in investigative journalism. We're talking about this Patrick Brown story, which has the story has become the story in a lot of ways. And Steve, we were chatting about sort of going into this and how you how you approach something like this when you know or when it sounds like it's going to be potentially contentious and potentially impactful do you start from the position if you, someone tells you something and you get an idea do you start from the assumption that it's true do you start from the assumption that it's untrue or do you start from the position that you have no idea i think the 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 latter the, the last of your three choices was the one i think you i think you have to start with a completely open mind um you have to understand that you know everyone knows this there's you know two sides to every story in our business there's three or sometimes four sides to every story um so you also have to consider people's motivations um so i think it's best you always start with an open mind it's possible that what you're being told is true it's also possible that things are being put forward in the best possible light uh, it's also possible that um, the story may change completely when you talk to the other side in, in the story. And, and so th- this type of story with uh, the situation with Patrick Brown is, is sort of the, um, you know, the diciest of all of the types of uh, investigative stories that you're going to do, where it's really just a matter of 
one person's version on one side, uh, another person's version on the other side. You do your best to try to corroborate somebody's story, so you make sure that you... Well, what about that? I want to jump in here for a sec, because what about that? The person, somebody, and I'm not suggesting that's happening here, but there's allegations or suggestions that some of the story that was given to the reporter by somebody was not accurate. So what happens if someone, and you believe it's in good faith, tells you something that is either intentionally or unintentionally not true? Are you on the hook for that, or are they? Well, so so you're back to you know what what efforts are you taking to defe- to to verify the information and so the worst possible situation that you could have is a situation where uh, somebody tells you a story that may seem a little bit fishy to you and you just sort of ignore those warning signs or uh, you don't follow through and find you know that there was a wit- you know so who else saw this find those people what do they say. And most importantly, at the end of the day, you still have to go to the other side, and you still have to be able to say to the other side, here are all of the things uh, that I've learned. What do you say about it? And do you have to include those then? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's really not about, uh, you know, if, you, if you're only doing what, you know, what's called gotcha journalism, where, you know, and in a situation like this, one has to wonder whether or not, and I'm not criticizing CTV uh, in this, but one has to wonder if there was a rush to publication, if there was... Um, so how much advance notice did they give the other side? Was it 15 minutes? Was it 15 hours? Was it three days? Uh, those can be very important considerations. Um, and then it's become so competitive out there and such a, a, a world driven by social media and and immediacy that uh, you wonder whether there's you know sometimes a, a rush to to get things out without you know dotting all the i's and crossing all the t's what about now th- this is another thing that has come up as a suggestion in this story let us say that the person who's making an allegation is a close friend of yours a do you stay involved in it b do you have to disclose that is that part of the public part of the story so if it was me and somebody was involved in something who was, uh, you know, somebody that I would consider a friend of mine, then I would recuse myself from doing the story in the first place. Um, it's just, I don't, know, I don't know what the advantages would be to doing the story. Uh, you're not going to win anyway. At the end of the day, you're, you're, you know, it's either going to come out that you were a friend or if you're too hard, if you're not hard enough, I mean, you'll, you just won't win that. I, I think it's best, as with most things, it's just best to be open and upfront right from the start. Would, um, would you agree? Now, we've got a situation here in this particular one, and I know you're not commenting specifically on the reporting in this case, but Patrick Brown has said now uh, that he's going to be filing a lawsuit. Would this be almost uncharted or unprecedented territory? Because the idea that uh, a guy who probably would have become premier may have been taken down, if it turns out that this journalism was not good, and we're not there yet, but if if it turns out, this has got to be close to uncharted territory. Well, uh, let's remember, Scott, that this was the same gentleman who was sued by by the leader of the province for for what were apparently or, or allegedly slanderous statements that he made about the premier that's of true that's so, true you know it, it's somewhat ironic that you know the shoe now forgot about that on the other foot here but it, it's not so much about whether somebody sues anyone can sue uh 
it's whether you get sued successfully, right? I mean, I could get sued for any story I write. I'm not worried about being sued. I'm worried about being sued successfully. Um, so, uh, you know, again, you're back to did you take those proper steps? I think what makes this story so volatile is that it's a subject matter now that uh, where the pendulum seems to be swinging, um, you know, where for decades and decades, um, you know, there's been uh, the perception that um, men had too much power, women weren't believed. The pendulum start, seems to be somehow moving on this issue. Um, has it moved now to the totally opposite end of the uh, of the swing so that people are now saying, well, whatever is said about men is true and, and whatever defense that they have is not true. And And so this is what makes this story particularly volatile, is it comes at a time when this is a really touchy subject matter to begin with. Wish we could do another hour or two of this. Unfortunately, we can't. But uh, Steve Buse, you can read his stuff in The Spectator. Excellent investigative reporter, uh, as I say, has won. Well, I don't know if he has a trophy shelf big enough for all the stuff he's won. Maybe you can build one. Uh, Steve Buse, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. It is it is definitely a complicated story and one we're going to be hearing a lot more about. And we'll probably talk about this again, about the journalism behind this, if things continue to move. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. There is one thing that I can I feel I can say with some certainty about most human beings. Most, not all, most. If you're flipping channels on your TV set and you come across the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show, you will stop flipping for at least a few minutes. That, that seems to be a common denominator. I don't know what it is about dog shows. But for some reason, you hear this, they, they are weirdly captivating. And I say weirdly because not everybody owns dogs. Not everybody even likes dogs. And yet somehow, this thing seems to get our attention. Well, my next guest did more than one better of just watching on TV. He just got back from being a judge at Madison Square Garden for the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. His name is Steve Daynard. Uh, Steve, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Glad to have you on. By the way, before we get going, I, I did want to ask this right off the bat. Do you own a dog? Yes, we do. We actually uh, have uh, English Springer Spaniels, and uh, although none live with us at the moment, we also have um, a Yorkshire Terrier that uh, shares our bed on a regular basis. <laughs> so when you walk in the door after being in an arena with hundreds of dogs and the dog starts sniffing you, do they just go nuts? <laughs> uh, you know, they're not too bad. They know something's going on, but, you know, they keep it down the low key. You know, just as long as you don't bring a strange dog home, I think they're okay with that. <laughs> this is, though, the biggest time of the year for, for this. It, it, when, you, when you walk out onto the floor of Madison Square Garden, which is, I mean, a legendary arena for a legendary show, it, is it pretty obvious how big this event is when you get there? It's kind of overwhelming, you know. It's so well uh, uh, choreographed, and they have such excellent support staff, even down to, you know, the ticket takers. And, and there's this process in place, and as soon as you walk in, you're really hit with the enormity of it, and you say, wow, this is definitely different for sure. Do you get nervous? Were you nervous? No, I, I kind of think that, you know, any nerves are very fleeting. I and mean, when you really get down to it, you want to make sure that you're as prepared as you can be. And when you focus on the task at hand, all the cameras and the crowds and, and oh, my God, New York people, you know, <laughs> love dogs. And, 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 and they even take time off of, off of work just to go see the show. It's Monday and Tuesday during the weekend. And they literally come faithfully just to be a part of the event. So once all that's kind of put, put on the back burner, you just really need 
need to focus on the task at hand and, and get in there and do the job that, that you're there to do for sure. Steve, had you ever been to the show before you were a judge? Yeah, so I've had a chance to go there a number of times. In particular, you know, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to, you know, volunteer in an unofficial capacity, um, being a ring steward, which is kind of being the, an aide to, you know, the judge on the day, making sure that dogs get cued in, you know, in order, and that everything's copacetic, and they got all the ribbons they need, et cetera. So that was even an awesome experience. But then to be able to be on the other end of this and kind of be the big man on campus for my, for my 2.4 minutes of fame, <laughs> really, really was super cool, you know. Where, where does your love of dogs come from? Everyone's got a story when they are a dog person. Where did yours come from? Well, we've always grown up with dogs, and uh, and then so you know, um, my mom and dad got into um, purebred dogs through my aunt and uncle who had relocated back to the Toronto area and they had been involved with, with confirmation dog shows and going to dog shows. And so, you know, we just kind of fell into it and we had a purebred uh, English Springer Spaniel at the time. And it was like, well, you need to get a female and go out there and breed. And I certainly don't propose that today. There's much more involved in the process than that, but that's kind of how we got into it. And then once we went to a few dog shows, we were really kind of, you know, bitten and, uh, I've basically been going to dog shows for the last 40 years since I was 13 years old and evolved through the sport. So it'll always be a part of my life and what an awesome community to, to, to be a part of. And you, when you say you went to dog shows and were bitten, that is a turn of phrase, right? Absolutely. Touch wood. Has that ever happened? When you're around dogs, has that ever happened to you? No, I, I, I think that the really good thing about being a great dog person is that you're able to, you know, read, you know, telltale signs and say, you know what, that guy's not a happy camper, kind of what's going on there, you know? And so, you know, the bigger thing is just not putting yourself in a position potentially that may, you know, cause injury. But having said that, generally speaking, you know, the dogs at the dog shows are really well socialized. They absolutely adore being part of the process. They get a ton of attention paid to them and they really thrive on it. You know, the, you, you say, hey, we're going to a dog show and boom, they know what that means. And so there is a structured approach to it and, and the animals really gravitate towards it. They love having that attention just flourished on them. Before we get to the nuts and bolts of what a judge actually does, because I've seen you guys work before and don't have a clue what you're looking for. I'm going to get to that in a second. But just before we do that, I got to ask you this, and I know you've probably been asked this question a hundred times, so I apologize for that. But for many people, if if they've seen the Westminster Kennel Club dog show on TV, that may be one exposure to it. The other exposure, I'm guessing for a lot of people, is that they saw the movie Best in Show. Right. Is there anything in that that people would look at and go, you know, there's actually some reality or is that just completely ridiculous? No, it's completely on mark. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so you know, that, that's a great show and obviously it's a parody. Of course. It's, inter- it's interesting because the first time I watched it, I thought, you know what? I kind of think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> so, 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 and the interesting thing about this is think about it. You know, when you get um, people, uh, you know, that are doctors and lawyers and, and really great hardworking people as well, that regardless of, of what their station in life is, all going to one event under one roof on, on a particular weekend, you're really getting a cross-section of society. So because it's right there in front of everyone to see, I think that's why it was easy to kind of pick out, oh, I think I know what they're talking about there. <laughs> so loosely based on reality, but obviously a parody and still great fun regardless. And you guys laugh at it? Oh yeah, I, I, I thought it was hilarious. All right, all right, I wasn't uh, sure. You know, so, so it may have struck a little bit close to home, but I was like, hey, it is what it is. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We're talking about the Westminster Dog Show and judging dogs with Steve Daynard, guy from just down the road in Niagara, who's just back from New York City where he was one of the judges at the show. Uh, Steve, okay, Again, when I'm watching this, at this level, when you get to Madison Square Garden and you are now talking about the cream of the crop, I can't tell the difference. I mean, it certainly breeds, but I can't tell the difference one dog to the next. So what are you looking for when you're judging these dogs? Because there's no mutts in the mix at this point. No, no. So so the the, the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, the Canadian Kennel Club or the American Kennel Club will put forward um, a written breed standard that describes exactly what the breed should look like. And it, it talks from everything from, you know, the nose to the tail, literally. So judges need to be aware of, of those um, uh, breed characteristics and those intrinsic qualities that make a golden retriever a really good golden retriever. So when the dogs come in, you're comparing each animal to that written standard and then saying, hey, in my estimation, this dog is better than the remaining dogs that are there. This is a very esoteric kind of question, but do do we know why? Like, let's say that the, a longer nose is ideal for something, or a longer tail. Who who has come up with the idealized version of these dogs? Like, how do we know this is really the best way for a dog to look of that breed? Excellent question. So, really, a lot of these breeds have originated, you know, literally, you know, sent not centuries, but but but, but hundreds of years ago, and then so so uh, uh, the normal evolution is a breed club, which really is, you know, the owner or the custodian of the breed, look to make changes in line with functional requirements, et cetera. And then they'll petition, you know, the, the kennel club to be able to say, hey, we feel as if an amendment's required for this reason, and there's a, a normal process for revising the breed standards. So, do, okay, so a dog walks out now. First of all, do you get to see the dogs before they come out? Is there any kind of prejudging done? No, no. So in many countries, there are a pre-level, a pre-judging level, but, but not in North America. So literally, you know, you, you know what the entry is as far as numbers are concerned, but you have no idea who's entered. So literally, you know, if you're scheduled to start at 1 o'clock, all the dogs come up, they're standing there, and you may glance across and see something that looks ideal to you. But until you actually get them in the ring and, t- and take a look at them, you know, with a fine-tooth comb, that's really when you make your determination. So at your level, there is a possibility that if, let's say, 10 of one type of one breed walks in, you could actually immediately spot the one that, in your mind, right off the bat, you think is probably the champion. Well, I, I think that you would probably be inclined to, you know, if a dog fills your eye and you have a mental image of what the ideal representative looks like and there's something that strikes you and says, hey, that looks interesting to me, it really needs you need to be able to dig further just to, to assure it and say yes. And there could be maybe some hidden issue, perhaps the, the mouth is off slightly or maybe the level of muscle conditioning isn't quite as good as what you know, the breed is calling for. It's a sporting breed and they have to go out there in the field and be in rock car condition until you get your hands on you really can't make that determination how many points would there be or criteria for a typical dog i mean is it like five things that you would look for or are there is the list a hundred things long that would make up the ideal dog yeah so so many dogs have a similar anatomy you know a structure you know that has some commonality right so understanding you know anatomy really does help and then when you start to layer on all those features that make a dog specific, um, you know, that's really, really what you need to understand as well as the icing on the cake. 
Um, uh, so, 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 does that answer your question? Well, because I mean, when I've watched before, you generally, you or any of the other judges, might have. 30 seconds, maybe a minute with each dog. There's no yeah. possible way that if there's a hundred things that make up the ideal dog that you no. could go through that whole checklist. So how many are you no. actually checking for? So, so ideally it's again, you're, you're, you're back to the breed standard and it talks about general appearance and how that dog fills your eye and, 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 you know, it's a tail wagging because, you know, heart space is a really big issue for a sporting dog. And then, so you're literally going from nose down to the tail and giving an overall impression of what the dog, the dog uh, m- means to you. And then from there, you're, you're breaking it down further, you know, in chunks and then looking at, again, the icing on the cake to say, yes, this is exactly what I thought it was, and this is the best dog. And with your level of expertise in this, by the time you've judged the dogs, are you generally, is it pretty obvious within your eyes, within your mind, which one was the best? Or is it often, again, such tiny, minute differences that even you struggle with it? Absolutely. Great question, especially at a show like Westminster, where the quality is so great. You may labor between a couple of dogs, and then really what it gets down to is is a bit of a contest. You know, you can extract two dogs out, for example, or three dogs you're really considering, run them through their paces again, and just kind of see, you know, at the end of the day, which one really, really wins the moment. Do you ever get flack from the owners after you've made a decision? Uh, I think generally the sport is really receptive to, um, you know, uh, positive feedback. You know, I mean, you can certainly see the gripers, you know, at ringside, the peanut calorie, who maybe <laughs> kind of roll her eye or whatever and do the whole, oh, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But you really have to be solid in your convictions and also do your homework and say, hey, it's okay for us to disagree. If you really don't like what I'm doing as far as your breed is concerned, you have an option. Don't show it to me. <laughs> It is, uh, which I'm totally fine with. <laughs> well, it, you know what, as I say, it's a fascinating thing because again, most people have seen this before and we don't have a clue what you're looking at. You're picking up the dog and I've seen people do some yeah. checking in the undercarriage, which I didn't even right. get into today, which we never figured that one out either, but there's all kinds of things. It is, uh, it is a mystery world, but, um, listen, Steve, congratulations on being chosen to do this. Uh, great job and welcome home. Awesome. Thanks for your time, Scott. Steve Daynard, who just finished judging Best in Show at the Westminster Kennel Club in New York, or in, yeah, New York City at Madison Square Garden. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I advise you, though, that if you're eating, eating, I'll just leave it at that, maybe put your fork down for just a second. <laughs> because uh, it's not, this is not a, it's not a gross story, it's just... Uh, I'm not going to do that to you during dinner time, but it's one of those ones where you kind of go, hmm, there it is. What would be, let me, well, let me ask you this question to get it started. Ben, I'm going to bring Ben in. Ben's on the other side of the glass today. Ben, what would be the oddest thing you could possibly think of from which to make a necklace? I mean, let your mind run wild. What would be the one thing or the other thing that would be the oddest possible thing you could come up with that, you know what, I'm going to make a necklace out of that item. What do you think it would be? Either frogs or toes. Frogs or toes. Well, you're not off by far in one of them. Very good guess. I'm, I'm very impressed. Although this also does suggest that you are severely twisted and a little demented at the same time. I was a little worried when you said that I was close. Yeah. So this woman in England, 
in Essex. Her name is Tors, T-O-R-Z. I don't know if that was her given name or if she's just adopted that name. She is a, um, a body piercer who has the word freak tattooed just above her eyebrow on her face. Uh, that might give you some indication of where we're going with this. Decided that she wanted a unique necklace. She needed something particularly unique that she would be able to hang around her neck that would show differently from what everyone else in the world did. Because I'm thinking that if you're willing to have the word freak written above your eye, you're going to try and live that lifestyle, the freak lifestyle. Get your freak on. Well, I think she achieved it. I think she has has, has reached that level of doing something bonkers enough that she has lived up to her tattoo. Here's what she did. <sighs> Got to take a breath before I say this. As a as a man who has lost two toes, which is a true story, I, I have to hold my breath when I say this. Uh, she somehow, doesn't say how, doesn't say if it was chemically with ice with a freezing needle, it doesn't say how. It's The story simply says she numbed the little finger on her left hand. And then, and if you're squeamish, this is when you should plug your ears and go, la, 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 la. She numbed the little finger on her left hand and then herself used a bolt cutter to cut off the finger at the main knuckle. Because why wouldn't you do that, really? I mean, when you're thinking of something unique to make jewelry out of, who wouldn't think, hey, I'll use one of my own fingers. She then put the finger the part that's not there in a solution of alcohol and in a little glass vial and had it made into, had a little loop put on it. So she now wears this as a necklace. She wears her own baby finger as a necklace, which, oh, and she calls the finger, of course she does, wiggles. Of course she does. Why wouldn't you call, she says it was cute, it's cute by the way, and she calls it wiggles. You know, it seems to me that if you want to put your fingers on display, the better way would just be to like hold them up as opposed, you know, why would you, who in the world would think that I want to intentionally lop off my own digits? I don't understand this for one second. Although here's where the story gets really odd. If it wasn't there already for you. Okay. I mean, I was thinking we had probably reached maximum oddness level. This has apparently been a huge boost to her business. I guess the body piercing and tattoo crowd, among them, not all of them, they're not all like this. There are people who have, there's a lot of people who have tattoos. doesn't make you a weirdo. doesn't make you odd. doesn't make you even really that different anymore. It's not even that edgy to have a tattoo anymore. Lots of people have tattoos. But I guess for some... This has made her store in Essex the place to go because, come on, why wouldn't you go and get a body piercing or a tattoo from the woman who lopped off her own finger to make a necklace? Why wouldn't you do that? See, my concern would be, what if this whole story is made up? What if she didn't intentionally cut off her little finger to make a necklace. What if she's just a really bad body piercer and had an accident and accidentally lopped off her finger? See, this is what you should be thinking of before you go to her store and saying, yeah, I want her to do work on me. I'm questioning 
the whole thing about how did that finger actually end up in that vial full of alcohol. I'm not buying, well, I probably am, but. Oh, and one last thing, just again, because, well, why wouldn't you? Her boyfriend, who also thinks this is very cute, has been buying her remaining stump miniature hats to wear. We do live in an odd world, don't we? You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Olympics are in full flight now. If you're if you're not already caught up in the Olympics, the men's hockey team won their first game today over Switzerland. The women last night, the women last night were fantastic. We're going to talk about this because we almost had our first ever brawl in a women's hockey game at the Olympics, which was uh, pretty cool. Uh, let me bring in our friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. <laughs> Hello? Hello. We're playing your intro music. <laughs> All right. Ben's Ben's still looking for stuff. How do you like that one? Is that working for you? <laughs> I hear I hear everything. Oh well, it was it was a lot of uh huh uh huh and and other stuff that was it was pretty funky. I'll tell you that much. I didn't hear a thing. All right. Well, next time. Hey, uh, welcome back. You're uh, we're glad to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. It's, were you uh, here last week? I can't remember. Were you here last week or uh, were you still away? No, actually I was sick last week. Oh, that's right. Yes. Sorry, you were away and then you got the bubonic plague. Uh, wow. Well, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was bad though. You couldn't even talk. Yeah, I couldn't talk. I mean, it was just uh, it was a mouth shutdown. <laughs> I had too much fun, I guess. Uh, but tonight Oh, tonight. Forget the Olympics for one second. I know what you're doing tonight. You're not watching the Olympics. You are watching with eyes focused, laser focus on that epic Senators-Sabres battle. Well, yeah. Aren't you you pumped up about the uh, debut of Marion Gabrick? I'm going to have to require more than Marion Gabbert to get me pumped up about a game between the Ottawa Senators and Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> yeah, a couple of... Uh, the toilet bowl, as it uh, were. You know, and it's, and it's really... Uh, I mean, this sort of was not predicted for the Ottawa Senators. Not at all. No one really saw this coming after the wonderful run that they had last season. Um, their team has just really bottomed out. And for the Sabres, I mean... You know, they're building a team. I do believe when I look at the coach, uh, Phil Housley, I look at those players, um, there's definitely been an improvement. But I will say this. They're all young. At a, they're all very young, but all very young at the same age. So perhaps there will be a time, not in the not-too-distant future, where we see a huge jump from those guys. Well, we could, or we could see the entire thing implode again and they start over again because it's not working. I, I mean, I don't know how patient they're going to be because it's been a while now. It's been a while since they've been any good. Uh, speaking of hockey, did you happen last night to stay up and watch the women's Canada-U.S. hockey game? Well, I wouldn't be a sportscaster if I didn't. <laughs> I, I, will, I want to say that, first of all, I've said for a long time now that the women's hockey will probably be more interesting in some ways at these Olympics or will at least get more attention. I thought last night's game was terrific. I, frankly, I thought the Americans were the vastly better team, to be honest, but Canada was more opportunistic. Sarah Nurse scores a beauty of a goal, Hamilton woman. Uh, but I thought, you know, we may, before this tournament is over, but by the end of that game, we were getting close to having a tussle. Nobody wants to get tossed out of the Olympics, so no one's actually going to throw a punch. But if the final game is Canada and U.S., and one of those two teams has a three- or four-goal lead late in the game... I could see some shenanigans going on. I could see something happening because they clearly hate each other at this point. 
yeah, they, there's definitely no love lost between the teams, and that's really obviously because two reasons. One, they're very close in, in, in abilities, um, and in terms of past success, for whatever reason, it seems like Canada seems to dominate in the Olympics. Over the past years, the United States has dominated in the World Championships. Um, I think there's also a, a fact that a lot of these players know each other from the NCAA system. So the familiarity is there. I mean, you have a girl, like as you said, like Sarah Nurse, who's you know an outstanding hockey player at the University of Wisconsin. There are players on Team USA that play for that very team. So, the, 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 and, you know, and of course a natural rivalry. So, I mean, do I expect a full-out brawl? No, I don't, I don't see that happening. I really don't. But what we saw last night was, you know, two teams that certainly don't like each other, and they both have a driving desire to be number one in the world. I, I agree with you. I don't see a brawl happening, but could you see late in the game, could you see, there's no, there's officially no body checking in women's hockey. Unofficially, there's plenty of body contact. I could clearly see if this game was getting out of hand. Some people laying some big hits just out of frustration. Yeah, the way I, these two teams play, I could cl- easily see that. I, I, I just don't see that. I, I think what you're going to see is tight competition, playing right to the whistle, maybe a little bit past it because of, as I said, the rivalry that exists between the two teams. Um, and, and again, you know, words are exchanged. I mean, I don't care who you're a guy or a girl. You're going to be trash talk on the ice. I mean, it's trash talk on the basketball court. I mean, these two teams are very, But that very is close. new. That and is new seen, for and, women's you know, hockey. And, and I, sorry not to interrupt there, but we've seen them brawl before. There was a competition last season, uh, last year. Uh, it, I think it was like a four-nations cup kind of thing or whatever, where at the end of the game, the two teams went at it. I mean, even harder than they did last night. But in the last couple of years, this is something that is a little bit new for women's hockey. And I think it's great. I think it. I think the level of competition and that that passion and that rivalry and everything else, I think that's great. Not, I, I'm not talking about having a brawl. I'm just saying the chippiness and the fact that it's very sure. obvious that there is a huge thing going on here. You know, and, I, and again, not to be a negative Nelly here, I think there may be an element of this as well, too. And this is just, you know, statistically, this is, you know, the truth. It's these two teams. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. There's, there's no one else that can compete at the level, especially on a consistent basis, with these two teams. 100%. So they're sick of each other. You know, like, Oh, they've played each other how many times? Six or seven times already this year, and that's just this year. Yeah, right. I mean, let, let's. I mean, between the World Championships, the Bean Pot, like not sorry, the Bean Pot, the Four Nations Cup, the Exhibition Series, the pre-tournament, this and that. These two teams see each other a tremendous amount, and like I said, again, these players also see each other on a you know on a quarter on a basis of an NCAA play and in the profession the women's professional league as well too so again there's a familiar a familiarity with each other and in maybe in some cases a disdain for each other when they put on their individual jerseys let me jump to a different sport for a minute, though still on ice, because we won a gold medal today. When I say we, I always want to clarify, I did not actually participate, neither did Bubba. Uh, but Canada did, and a Canadian, Ted Jan Blumen, won in 10,000-meter speed skating. Now, Ted Jan Blumen is an interesting story, and the reason I bring this up is because he was not born here. He moved here, I think, about four years ago and just recently got his passport. He has a father who was born in Canada, but he grew up in the Netherlands and, and just 
came here to skate for Canada and to live in Canada. In any way, does that diminish the Canadianness of this medal? No, not at all. I mean, he's racing for Canada. Um, I don't know if it needs much more than that, really. He's racing for Canada, and that's who he chose to represent. I think it was sweet for him because he couldn't get a bite with the Netherlands team. And let's be honest, Netherlands, they are the dominant country in speed Yeah, absolutely. Um, And a guy like uh, the Klammer, who he crushed by over 20 seconds in in today's final, it it was sweet redemption for him. He couldn't get the sort of funding and the backing that he went with the Netherlands, and he chose over here. I think we see this kind of thing all the time. And, I mean, now that we're allowing professional players in, in so many Olympics right now, I think we're seeing a lot of hop skipping and jumping and people becoming either, you know, a, a member of an individual country for because of, you know, a one parent or a grandmother. I mean, there's certain rules that are out there that are, I mean, can be taken advantage of. So, I mean, to me, I saw that race live and uh, I, I felt great for, for Canada when, when he won. And let me tell you the reason I asked that question, because, of course, it's another medal in the bank for Canada and we all feel great about it. But... I don't know, pick who's one of our best, most dominant. Let's say Donovan Bailey, prior to the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, a year before, decided, I'm going to move to the States and run for the United States. I don't think that Canadians would be quite as vigorous as saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. Whoever you want to run for, you run for. I think we'd be sour about that if one of our athletes decided to leave and then did well at the Olympics. I really do. Well, we've experienced this before. I think uh, the name that comes to mind is Rudzinski. Greg Rudzinski, yeah, who, or, and who played for Britain. And, and, and Lennox Lewis, another one. Right. Yeah, and, and, sort of. You know, the Lennox Lewis thing was a little different. Well, he did it after his amateur career. Yeah, he sort of did it, but it wasn't more so for. I mean, it's just where he did his training and he took on the English, the uh, British sort of um, background. But I and sort a, of a British accent. Yeah, and a sort of British <laughs> accent there. You know, the guy from Kitchener all of a sudden. So, but that one was well, a little I, bit different. But the Rosetsky was definitely because he couldn't get a deal done with Canada, and he said, "You know what? Screw this. I'm going to go for you know play for um, for England and and had some measure of success." And, and and I think we were a little, we were as Canadians we were all a little annoyed by it all. Well, but. Brett Hull, Brett Hull had a Canadian U.S. citizenship. Good he could have point. chosen either one yes. and went to play for the states. And people were salty about that fact. They said he should have been here playing in Canada. You know, but again, no. But it was a situation where I think there was also there was reasonings behind the fact that the, if I remember correctly, at the time they weren't sure if he was going to make the team, and and then. You know, remember he wasn't the Brett Hall at that time when he made that decision that he would end up being a future Hall of Famer. Um, other than the fact that he had a famous father, so uh, I think we took some note to that because of his father. But and then he ended up being a tremendous hockey player. But I mean, these, like I said, these, this kind of thing kind of goes on all the time. You know, players are looking for the advantage. Where are they going to get treated the best? Where are they going to get the best coaching? Um, and because of the fact that the Olympics, and I know we're specifically speaking about the Olympics, but because these rules have opened up and professional players are now allowed to play, it has opened this up wide that this kind of thing is happening all the time. Got just a couple minutes left here, but I want to ask you this, and I've brought this up before. I want to get your thought on this one. 
Uh, there are we are doing Canada again. We Canada is doing exceptionally well at these Olympics. We're winning I think medals. I would say we in the Olympics. I well, are you, okay. Well, I'll say well. Okay. Well, we can have that discussion another day for sure. Um, Canada is doing very well, winning medals all over the place, and I'm wondering if it's because we've won so many medals already and are looking like we're going to get a lot more. I'm wondering if it may be the fact that we're getting used to winning medals. We've done so much at Sochi and so much before that at Vancouver that it seems that we don't quite in a lot of places have the same excitement across the board. There are events that we certainly will be celebrating if we win medals in those events, curling, figure skating, hockey. But I talked about this with someone earlier today. We won two medals in Luge yesterday or today. And I heard a bunch of people go, yeah, we did great. Okay. How else did we do? What else did we do? Once upon a time, winning any kind of medals in the Olympics would have sent us over the moon. We would have been thrilled with that. Now it's kind of like, well, there's some that really matter, and that's great. We're doing okay in those ones. Have we lost some of the thrill of winning just because we've done so much winning? No, I I don't agree with that. But what I do agree with here, Scott, at least in my observation, and I don't know if this is because of the age I'm at right now, and the fact that the Olympics have changed a little bit. And we're seeing a crossover of generations. And with that crossover of generations, we're seeing the mixing of traditional sports with some new sports, I'll call it. I mean, today we won a silver medal in luge, but it was a mixed luge event, right? That has never happened. I mean, this is only the second year of this event ever. We also won a gold in mixed curling. This has never happened before. But they're making these sports up for a newer generation that maybe don't have the same attention span or they like more action. We're seeing more X-game sports. So I think depending on what generation you are in right now, you're like bah humbug to some sports and really appreciating some other sports. Yeah, it is. Um, well, hey, as I let you go, speaking of, uh, of luge, we were talking about this off the top. Would you ever participate in the two-man luge? Um, <laughs> do I have to answer that question? I said off the top. Uh, to I, me, I'll it looks be, like uh, the most uncomfortable sport to be in, especially if you're the guy in the bottom just being squished into the ice. Well, I, you know, and it's funny that, I mean, this, this is hilarious that we're talking about this. But well, by watching the, the mixed luge today, and I, I actually thought about that, and I'm like, okay, what would be the more uncomfortable situation <laughs> here? Being on the top or the bottom? <laughs> And, I, and you know what? We're not talking about this in a sexual thing. It's literally an uncomfortable thing because Absolutely. if you're on top, well, at least if you're on top, you can see where you're going. But dude, if you wipe out and you're the one on top, that's not good. You may t- you may go airborne. <laughs> if at least if you're the one on bottom and you wake up, I mean, you're, at least you're kind of pinned to the to the actual sled. Like, I mean, it's. It, I suppose, and also it's been so cold in South Korea, maybe being on the bottom, at least you get some body heat. You get to warm up. (laughs) The ride down the hill isn't all windy and everything. And in that mixed luge event, you're the one that's responsible for getting up and slapping the timer at the top. That's true. Yeah. Has anyone ever forgotten to do that? I've been thinking about that. You're so comfortable now. You're so cozy in your two-man luge. You go, oh, I'm relaxed. And then you forget to hit the timer thing to stop. Well, you can't do that. But the question is, though, how do you know when to get up and knock that thing up? Well, because you're on top. You can see it. If you're the guy on the bottom, you're like, are we there yet? Are we there? You're like the kid in the back seat. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I got to go to the bathroom. Are we there yet? 
It is a wild sport, I'll tell you that much. Uh, yeah, you know what? We're adding so many quirky things to the Olympics, again, with the mixed curling and everything else. Next Olympics, we've got four-man bobsled, four-man luge. <laughs> if, if they can build a sled to do it, I'm sure people will try it. Hey, we have those, uh, what do you call those uh, giant canoes The um, that everyone goes in? you got like 50 people in a canoe. With the dragon boats? The dragon boats, yeah. We could have dragon luge. Have 50 guys on a loose sled all going down in one big thing. But it would have to be a bendable sled so you could get around the corners. I think that could be outstanding. You know, like in, for the summer games, I'm just looking at this NASCAR right now, the, the uh, qualifying for the Daytona 500. But like, when does that become part of the summer, the summer, a summer Olympics? It used to be. Car racing at one time was an Olympic sport. You're kidding me. It was. I think only for one Olympics, and I don't think it was NASCAR. I, 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 it was a long, long, long time ago, probably around the time that uh, tug-of-war was an official Olympic sport, and live pigeon shooting, <laughs> which is true. They both were. Or the, uh, what was that? What did I see recently? I, I think it was in 92 games, uh, maybe in Lillehammer, they had the, ball- the ballet on skis. Yes, yes. That's right. I can't remember what they actually called it, but yeah, I do recall that. But I want to go back. I think that the the four-man at least luge would be something we want to consider for the next Olympics. And the two-man skeleton, which would be really uncomfortable. Well, I mean, if the IOC can make money on it, they'll try it. Yeah, I, oh, no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> and maybe the last one, you should have the, the skeleton or the luge, your choice, no sled. You can go feet first or head first. As whoever gets down the run fastest with no sled, you just take a run and then dive down the thing and go. That you don't think people would tune in to watch that because you couldn't hold your body straight. You'd be flipping and rolling, and that would be great stuff. You know what? That's true. I never thought of it that way. Why do you have to lie down? Why can't you lie in your belly or standing up? Try see who can stand on that run the longest without wiping out, just well, sliding that, down. Then that turns into Olympic surfing. Foot surfing. <laughs> Bubba O'Neill, glad your voice is back. Consider that two-man luge opportunity, though, for yourself. Uh, start a CHCH team for the next Olympics. I'm working on it. <laughs> Appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.